Hey everyone, tonight we're back with another tragic murder mystery from the woods. This one has it all, death, violence, and corruption. So you know, viewer discretion is advised. We'll be discussing a triple homicide from 1960 where the suspected killer was ultimately cleared of all charges after many years of declaring his innocence. There's police corruption, the mishandling of evidence, conspiracy theories, and a few puzzling inconsistencies. Where did all of this occur, you ask? Well, that would be the Starved Rock State Park. It's located along the Illinois River in LaSalle County and is considered one of the state's most beautiful locations. This vast stretch of land covers over 2,300 acres and it became an official state park in 1911. Its popular attractions feature waterfalls, 13 miles of trails, and 18 canyons with walls made of moss-covered St. Peter sandstone formed by glacial meltwater. According to the park's website, humans have inhabited the area since way back to 8,000 BC, and its name is derived from a Native American legend of injustice and retribution. Chief Pontiac of the Ottawa tribe was slain by a rival tribe's warrior while attending a council meeting. Multiple battles followed and other tribes became involved. The Potawatomi were allies of the Ottawa, and during one particular battle, they found themselves seeking refuge atop the 120-foot sandstone butte we now call Starved Rock. We call it that because the Potawatomi were instantly surrounded. They remained trapped until each succumbed to a slow, painful death from starvation. But enough about that. Let's get into this story that's been 60 years in the making. First, a little bit about our victims. Francis Murphy... Mildred Lindquist and Lillian Uting, the three women, were close friends, all married to successful Chicago businessmen and heavily involved in their local Presbyterian church. They supported one another through life's hardships, such as when Lillian was nursing her husband back to health after a heart attack. Though entering their later years, they were all physically fit and healthy for their ages. It was in March of 1960 when they decided to take a three-day girls' trip to Starved Rock State Park, but sadly it was a trip they would never return from. They booked two hotel rooms upon arrival, dropped off their luggage, and went to the dining room for lunch. They were noticeably in good spirits and expressed to the staff how happy they were with the accommodations, all the while completely unaware of the devastating blow soon to come or the lasting effects it would have on their community. Deciding the snow was light enough to be easily traversed, the three ladies set out for a quick hike towards St. Louis Canyon with cameras in hand. They wound their way through ravines and 20-foot drops while traveling through the slippery, narrow canyon trail until it finally arrived at the end, which was marked by an 80-foot wall on three sides. This area is only one mile away from their accommodations, but it was days later before searchers finally reached their remains. The first sign of something gravely amiss was when Lillian Uting failed to call her husband as planned. George Uting tried to contact his wife at the lodge only to be told that she was unavailable, and utterly unaware of Lillian's actual situation, he simply went to sleep. The following morning was a Tuesday and he tried again, only to be told she was busy. Again, no alarm bells were rung and a message was left on Lillian's door, the exact wording of which is unknown. George called the other husbands to update them on the situation, but he didn't yet see the reason to call authorities. On Wednesday, he tried again, this time pushing for the employee to check the women's room, and sure enough, there was not a single sign of them. Their beds were unmade, and their luggage was still there. Clearly a distressing sign. By this point, the women had been missing for over 40 hours, and due to police continuously brushing aside concerns from the worried husbands, eight more hours would pass before the search would actually begin. Tragically, the search party would quickly discover the bodies of all three women lying side by side in St. Louis Canyon. Two had their wrist bound with twine and their bruised legs spread. The binoculars were broken, the camera was dented, and four inches of snow had obliterated any tracks that may have been left behind. The only other clue seemed to be a bloodied yard-long log left nearby. 
The weather had considerably worsened as additional snow and ice covered the already narrow trails, making gathering evidence all the more difficult. Six inches of snow coated the ground where the remains lay, and to reach them, authorities were forced to bring in heavy tanks of liquid petroleum gas to burn away the top layer of snow very slowly. Though there was a risk of damaging vital evidence, it was a risk they deemed worth taking. Sources vary on what was found there. But among the evidence found beneath the snow was a piece of tin foil and bloodstains. Though, don't forget, this was 1960, so that means much less than it would today. The twine used on the two victims was the same as the one found in the lodge's kitchen, and Frances was the only one with additional binds around her ankles. There are differing accounts of how many were assaulted, but these two also had clothing left askew to indicate the worst. Lillian and Mildred had removed their underwear and pants, while all three women's clothing was damaged, and their coats were placed between their legs. While the evidence was collected at the scene, other investigators began checking up on the known sex offenders in the area, though it didn't take them very far. It would be months before an arrest was made. After pathologists had state crime lab officials carefully removed the bodies, the autopsies occurred at the Hulse Funeral Home in Ottawa. Each was covered in blood. Their skulls were smashed and their faces were considerably bruised. The bloody tree stump was the suspected murder weapon, as the fatal injuries were made through blunt force trauma to the head. Eight pieces of evidence were found, and we'll be discussing those a little bit more. For now, just know the many images on Mrs. Murphy's camera were processed, but there was no sign of their murderer. Just three lovely women enjoying a seemingly wonderful vacation. The motive behind the brutal attack was unclear. Robbery was thought to be a possibility, however it was disregarded when the women's valuables were discovered with the bodies. On the surface, Chester Wegger seems like a perfect criminal to connect with in this case. At the time of the murders, he was 21 years old with a wife and two kids. Plus, he had a bad boy image straight out of the 1950s. Though he worked as a dishwasher at the Starred Rock Lodge for a time, some sources have differing accounts as to whether he was still employed there at the time of the murders, or if he was currently working in the family business, painting with his father. What drew attention to him were the two prior incidents in which he was suspected of sexual assault. The first instance occurred when Wegger was 12, and the victim was an 8-year-old girl. The second incident happened the previous year in 1959. In this latter case, not only was he later identified by the victim and her boyfriend, the crime occurred remarkably close to the site of our current murders. When questioning the suspect's colleagues, police learned Wegger came to work with a fresh scratch mark on his face. The source of the scratches were unknown, but Wegger insisted they were from shaving. As for his whereabouts at the time of the murders, he claimed to be writing letters in his basement, an impossible alibi to confirm, but also a contradiction to his last story. It would also seem he failed the polygraph, but let's keep in mind that those aren't foolproof. While these do sound like legitimate causes for suspicion, we must remember the authorities were under considerable pressure to find the killer. This was a very high-profile case at the time. Not only were three prominent women brutally murdered, the town was terrified. When things like this happen in smaller communities, it affects everyone. Even the economy suffers. With all of these factors in place combined with the era, I mean, Miranda warnings weren't even a thing yet, there's room for consideration. Is Wegger a cold-blooded killer or the victim of a corrupt police force eager to solve a crime? Well, it should be known that he always maintained his innocence. He maintained it for weeks before enduring an interrogation that lasted for over 24 hours. Throughout his extended period of questioning, Wegger was supposedly threatened with electric chair, a gun, and of course, this in addition to his claims of being beaten during his initial arrest, didn't help him at all. Still, after his life felt threatened, he signed a confession, claiming responsibility for the deaths of the three women in the robbery gone wrong. Then, almost immediately after, he formally recanted the confession. Unfortunately, we can't see the interrogation for ourselves to know the truth. It seems all we'll ever really have is hearsay, so we better hear it all. Some sources also mention this confession involved Wegger taking police to the crime scene and reenacting the murders. Did the officers also force him to write that he saw a red and white plane fly overhead after killing the women? 
because flight records did indicate this to be a true statement. It's also true that Wegger's jacket had human blood splatter on it. Further, if you recall his original alibi, there were no witnesses to corroborate him being in his home in the basement. Perhaps that's why his story changed repeatedly. The only detail to remain constant was his innocence. Eventually, he produced a more substantial alibi. He claimed to be getting a haircut at the time of the murders, which others did attest to. While these discrepancies seem incredibly convenient, we should also remember this was several years after the actual events occurred and memories are fragile. Regardless of these loose ends, Wegger's claims of innocence fell on deaf ears, and he was still convicted, not just for the deaths of Mildred Linquist or Francis Murphy. On March 3, 1961, Chester Wegger was found guilty for the murder of Lillian Uting, and he was sentenced to life in prison a month later on April 3rd, thanks to one lone juror. Wegger was also spared the death penalty despite the popular opinion thinking that he should get it. This left many upset that he would eventually be eligible for parole. Meanwhile, he served his time at the Illinois State Penitentiary and Pickneyville Correctional Center as one of their longest-serving inmates in history. Over the course of his sentence, he was ultimately denied parole more than 20 times before it was finally granted in November 2019. It wasn't denied due to poor behavior or anything like that, but because he refused to show remorse and maintained his innocence for the duration of his sentence. When the Illinois Prisoner Review Board granted Wager's parole with a 9-4 vote, his family cried tears of relief. Those who voted for his relief noted, Wager's age, fragile health, lengthy incarceration, and lack of disciplinary action during his sentence. After the decision was announced, one of the victim's granddaughters crossed the crowded Springfield board office with tears. She embraced Wager's younger sister, Mary Pruitt, stating she always believed in her brother's innocence. Contrastly, Diane Uting, the granddaughter of Lillian, also present that day, and she urged the board to keep Wager incarcerated but was not without sympathy for the man's family. Believe it or not, the two families spent much time together throughout the legal process and became somewhat of friends. At the hearing, Diane said, While we may not agree with the decision, we certainly respect it. Per the Attorney General's request, Wager was held for an additional 90 days after being granted parole. This was to provide time for an evaluation under the state's sexually violent persons law. This allows for civil commitment if a person is deemed too dangerous to be set free. But in Wager's instance, they did not believe that to be the case and he was released in February 2020. He was then sent to St. Leonard's House in Chicago, a facility where elderly former inmates can receive help becoming reaccustomed to life outside. Almost immediately upon his release, Wager was placed on a speakerphone with the press where he was quoted as saying, I'm happy. I'm happy just to get out, you know? Tell everybody that I said thank you. In a recent Rolling Stones article, a now 83-year-old Wager is quoted as saying, I'm innocent. I was innocent. I want to be vacated. He stayed with his sister and her husband in LaSalle, Illinois. Only one juror was still living at the time of his release, a 95-year-old who feared being named. She firmly believed Wager was guilty and may seek revenge on her. Though she has passed away since, sometime in 2016, the lone juror who refused to vote for the death penalty openly admitted to regretting her verdict of guilty. Now, if Wager's proclamations of innocence were all we had to go on, we wouldn't be putting much consideration into this theory. But there are actually some legitimate concerns to discuss. Do you remember those eight pieces of evidence I mentioned? Andy Hale, Wager's attorney, requested they be re-examined with modern technology. According to a 2022 Rolling Stones article, the defense team first tried this in 2004 but withdrew their motion upon learning evidence had been stored improperly and potentially was corrupted. In 2007, they petitioned the governor for clemency, but you won't be surprised to hear that it was denied. It was only recently they decided to try again. Though initially denied at first, the team's second attempt was approved and the results were tremendous. Despite prosecutors having previously described the evidence as a complete mess, Hale was surprised to find everything properly stored and neatly labeled. Unfortunately, only one item was actually able to be tested for reliable results, but it was still a massive break in the case. The hair found on one of the women's gloves was from a male, and it was not Wager. 
Hale hopes this will be enough to make his case directly to the state's attorney and receive permission to compare the new DNA analysis to the CODIS database. If a new match could be found, this case may have a different resolution shortly. By now, you may be wondering who else could or would be able to subdue and murder these three healthy women. And that's where this case gets even trickier. Now, we're going to dive into some alternative theories. It is admittedly a little difficult to believe that one man, while apparently on his lunch break, assaulted and murdered three women, dragged their bodies away, and cleaned himself up in well enough time to return to work with no more than a few scratches on his face. At the very least, one would expect him to have some sort of help. Pending our source, it was either 1982 or 1983 when an elderly woman made a deathbed confession to Chicago Police Sergeant Mark Gibson stating she and her friends were responsible for the three women's deaths. In 2006, he described the confession in an affidavit. The elderly woman had been at the park with her friends when things got out of hand. She could say people were murdered and the victims' bodies were dragged, but that's as far as she got. The interview came to a sudden halt when the suspect's daughters intervened, saying their mother had lost her mind. There was no mention of further investigation into her claims, and this theory quickly went cold. Three other men were suspects at some point. Two were reportedly overheard referring to the murders on the phone, and the third was allegedly seen throwing a pair of bloodied overalls. Lastly, and my favorite, even if there isn't any evidence to support the claim, there is a theory that these murders were tied to the Mafia. These women were the wives of wealthy Chicago businessmen, after all. Who knows what their husbands may have really been into. I know it's a little out there, but hey, it's the cases where you have to consider every possibility, you know? The media sensationalized this case and changed the town's culture. It went from being a kind place where everybody left their doors unlocked to the type of place where everyone ensured their windows were locked at all times, their sense of security was tarnished, and nobody felt safe. Headlines included shocking titles such as Triple Killer Tells All and Starved Rock Confession. The once peaceful park was suddenly referred to as the Canyon of Death, and people went to great length just to avoid the area. The lodge went from regularly booking rooms to barely being filled, and the community was split as to whether Wager was innocent or guilty. HBO even made a docuseries about the case called The Murders of Starved Rock which ends on a note of mystery just before the DNA results were returned. With so much recent activity in the case, perhaps they're waiting for enough material to have a second season. And there we have it. The Starved Rock State Park Murders. So, what do you think? Is Chester Wager an innocent man who finally gained his freedom? Or a sadistic killer? Do you believe his confession was purely motivated by a corrupt police force? Is there any theory you believe in more than the others? Let me know in the comments. Welcome back, Swamp Folk. Once again, we are crossing into international waters to bring you the darkest wilderness content available. More specifically, we're taking a trip down under to Wilson's Promontory National Park in Victoria, Australia, where we'll learn about the mystery that is Patrick Hildebrand. Don't worry, we aren't messing with any of those giant spiders today, at least none that we know about. But the case is unsolved, so you never know. Now, most of you have probably never heard the name Patrick Hildebrand, and that's completely fine, as I have not either before looking into this case. But just know if you like puzzles, you'll love this episode. But before we dive into this case and the strange details around it, let me tell you about Wilson's Promontory. Any national park in Australia will be beautiful, but this one in particular has a fascinatingly rich history. We can spend 20 minutes alone on it, but I'll stick with a summary. The indigenous Koori people occupied this land at least 6,500 years ago before the first Europeans arrived, and it's considered to be home of the Bratualung clan spiritual ancestor Lu Ern. Even today, this area remains highly significant to their descendants. The first Europeans didn't come along until 1798, and for parts of the 19th century, the promontory was used for seal hunting and shore-based whaling. This carried devastating consequence for local wildlife, so in the 1880s and 1890s, a public campaign was waged to turn these areas into a national park which was made official in 1898. 
Before the first road was completed in the 1930s, the promontory was only accessible by boat, and during World War II, they closed it to the public entirely to use the park as a commando training ground. In 2005, a fire started by the staff got out of control and burned 13% of the park. However, it was deemed necessary to evacuate campers. This incident was nothing compared to 2009, when a lightning strike near Sealer's Cove started a fire that burned 62,000 acres. If this weren't devastating enough, it happened on February 8th, the day after Black Saturday. For those unfamiliar, Black Saturday was the day an intense heat wave, combined with arson and faulty electrical infrastructure, led to hundreds of brush fires throughout Victoria. The fire stopped just a half a mile away from Wilson's Promontory's only community, Tidal River. Its camping area and park headquarters were left unaffected luckily, and they could reopen just a month later. If fires weren't enough to deal with, March 2011 brought enough rainfall to cause major flooding, and the bridge over Darby River became severely damaged. This left Tidal River camping area inaccessible by vehicle for quite some time, and visitors were evacuated by helicopter over the following days. In Easter of 2012, before all the repairs were finally completed, well, that's Australia for you, am I right? Maybe we should find more of these, but before you decide... Let's talk about Patrick Hildebrand first. I think you'll find this case as interesting as I do. In 1987, Patrick Hildebrand was nine years old and living in Dandenong, Victoria, with his mother, Christine, and two brothers. One of these brothers, Joe Hildebrand, actually grew up to become a journalist who has worked for several Australian publications and news outlets. He had a remarkable career, but most notable to our story is when he joined the morning show Studio 10 from the years 2013 to 2020. While there, he interviewed with co-host Sarah Harris to discuss the tragedy of losing his little brother at such a young age. He describes their father as a globe-trotting, troubadour hippie who left town to be with another woman when Joe was six and Patrick was four. This had a significant impact on the family. Not only had he left their home, but he had also left their lives. If raising three children as a single mother wasn't tricky enough, Patrick suffered from a severe developmental delay and had epilepsy on top of it. While we as a society still have a long way to go with mental health care, it's treated with far more understanding today than it was in the 1980s. I also want to be clear that Joe didn't name his brother's specific diagnosis in the interview. He refers to Patrick as autistic, and it's widely speculated that he very likely was. But an article from the Daily Mail also named one of his conditions as Gestalt Syndrome. It's a form of epilepsy that seems to either have a connection with or similarity to autism. Also, remember that what we know about mental health has changed a great deal since 1987. So it's no surprise the sources don't exactly match, but what to call it isn't essential. I just want to give you a basic idea of what the Hildebrand's lives were like. According to a case study, his specific type of epilepsy, Lennox-Gestalt syndrome, means intellectual development, is usually delayed and often worsens over time. Other symptoms include multiple seizures and behavioral problems such as hyperactivity, agitation, and aggression. Joe stated Patrick could be excellent one moment but suddenly suffered from a fit of anger. He once picked up an axe and swung it at his older brother. But fortunately, the strike didn't make contact. He also stated Patrick once pointed at a staticky television and said that's what it was like inside of his head. So while it does seem to line up, please don't forget this information only applies to one type of epilepsy, a type that accounts for just 2-5% to of cases among children. Like I said, I want you to understand the victim's condition, but don't take it as gospel if someone you know suffers from seizures or a mental illness. Always seek medical advice from actual professionals, okay? My expertise is in a different kind of disturbed. As for the summer Saturday that would fundamentally change the Hildebrand's lives, Patrick, his mom, his brothers, and his cousins were wandering along the lily-pilly gully nature walk in Wilson's promontory when the nine-year-old ran around a bend and into the forest. 
Nature walks were one of Patrick's favorite activities, so he had been slightly ahead of the group when he suddenly took off. They were roughly ten minutes into the two-and-a-half-mile hike when this happened. And even though the others quickly followed, Patrick was never seen again. When the family initially failed to locate the young boy, they retraced their steps to the car park and drove just over three miles to the ranger's headquarters, where they were able to report him as a missing child. Rangers wasted no time embarking on a piecemeal search, but their efforts were halted on behalf of the evening fog. The following morning, the police search and rescue took over, and an entire operation was officially underway. It was one of the largest manhunts in Victoria's history, with more than 130 men and three helicopters, but for all of their efforts, investigators were never even able to definitively determine if the boy was taken or vanished on his own. I find it difficult to imagine he could have gotten lost if his family was so close behind. But we'll have to save our theories for the end. First, let's go through the entire search so you know where everything stands. The Australian Missing Persons Register is the best collection of information for this case. It has several photographs of Patrick and almost every article published since his disappearance. One clipping from 1987 brings an even more ominous tone to the case when it puts the investigators' decisions under great scrutiny. With the initial description of search efforts, it may sound like every effort was being made to locate Patrick, but this article puts that into question entirely. Their concerns can be condensed into three main issues. First is the discretion of the search in its early stages. So, let's go back to those 130 volunteers for a second. They started their search from where Patrick vanished, and by that afternoon they had found a bed of ferns where Patrick's yellow hat, only a few hundred yards away, was found. The police then marked out a roughly one-kilometer rectangle in that area encompassing these two points. Searchers went through everything inside the perimeter. They left no stone unturned in their efforts, which is actually kind of a problem unto itself as you'll soon see. This is how the rest of Sunday was spent, and when the day ended, lead investigators made a critical decision that would significantly impact Patrick's case's progression. Lily Pilly Gully happens to lead down into a treacherous swamp, and it was concluded that, had Patrick indeed wandered into this area, he would already be dead. If they had any hope of finding him alive, it would be in the dry uplands. Therefore, Monday morning, lines of searchers stood at arm's length as they fanned out from the original starting point. Bushes and shrubs were flattened as they moved along the paths, marked with tape, and at night, helicopters scanned the area with heat-seeking infrared equipment. Don't forget to factor in that Patrick suffered from severe developmental conditions and seizures. These guys weren't racing a standard clock here. And even before you factor in, they were already disadvantaged, not knowing how Patrick would react under these circumstances. Authorities couldn't be sure if he would approach rescuers or hide from them. With the help of his doctor and psychiatrist, the police tried their best to make an educated guess at his probable movements since becoming lost. Ultimately, it was concluded that the boy might have been lured from the path by a butterfly or lizard, but once there, it's unlikely he would have registered the need to call for help. Instead, it's far more likely that he would have simply continued in the same direction, unaware of being lost. This theory factors into why the police decided to shake things up on Tuesday. Instead of continuing with the same plan, they jumped ahead of the leading search party and started lowering additional personnel into higher, more rugged terrain. This would become the second primary concern of the investigation. John Butler with Emergency Services offered to assist with the investigation on the day Patrick went missing, and when his offer was declined, he continued to provide his assistance each day afterward. Finally, he arrived on the scene that Friday, but once there, he told reporters that the advance bush drops put into effect on Tuesday would have been his first move. The higher-ups could have taken this comment better, and it effectively ruined any chance Butler had to participate. Afterward, he refused further remarks except that his aboriginal trackers were better suited to the task than the bushwalkers assembled by police. Though Inspector Bob Hanna defended his strategy to the bitter end, John's comment would never be forgotten in the face of failure. Finally, this brings us to our third main issue, arguably the most concerning. 
whether due to his minor clash with John Butler or for other reasons entirely, officials were against full use of the state emergency services professional aboriginal trackers. The three trackers involved weren't brought in until that Friday. But, honestly, by that point, the search efforts were reduced to only 60 men, and Inspector Hannah only had a mere 20% chance of finding Patrick alive. Most people, including Patrick's family, felt that the trackers should have been utilized from day one. Unfortunately, being so late in the game, there was little left that they could actually do. As mentioned before, previous ground search attempts left no stone unturned. Any sign that would have been there was long erased. Why did they not use the best trackers their country has to offer? Well, I keep seeing that Inspector Hannah actually had the option to use them from the beginning, yet decided to stick with tactics that had been proven successful in the past, namely search and rescue teams and the most advanced technology of the time. While present, the trackers were taken to a footprint near where the yellow hat was found, even after casts were made, it could never really be confirmed as belonging to the little boy. By Saturday morning, only 15 men were left, and by the afternoon, the search effort was called off altogether. Not everything said about the searchers was negative, though. A 2013 article from The Australian quoted a senior volunteer searcher saying, We searched so hard and for so long. People put so much effort into it. We were loaded into helicopters, winched down onto the ridge, marched down, and then winched back into the helicopter to do it all again the next day. The vegetation was incredibly thick, but the entire area was completely trampled by the fifth day. We didn't know what more we could really do, honestly. He also shared a story of a senior sergeant, saying he had a son roughly the same age as the missing boy. For years after this incident, the sergeant would still go down to search in his own time. But sadly, it seems he suffered a little bit of a breakdown due to sheer disbelief that they could not find Patrick, even after their abundant resources. Before we start pouring over the possibilities, I would like to share that Joe Hildebrand had to say on the matter. When asked what he believed, he responded, I just honestly don't know. You sort of try not to think about it. When asked if he believed in the possibility that Patrick was still alive, if he could have found his way toward a road, Joe was understandably hesitant to answer, but the few words he did say said so much. I think that's just probably where madness lies. Everyone grieves in their own way, and this is one of the healthier ways I've seen, so bravo. Anyway, on to those theories, and let's start with the one most people believe. Did Patrick simply wander off on his own? Could he have been distracted by a butterfly, as officers theorized? It's a shame the trackers couldn't look over the area before it was trampled. We could have learned so much more. How did he get away that fast if he had run ahead into the woods? Well, the sad fact of this all is, it happens all the time. The wilderness can be as cruel as beautiful and doesn't play favorites. It gives and takes without prejudice or sympathy. As for wondering if Patrick would respond to searchers, if he were autistic, they tend to develop powerful interest in certain things, and if he felt this way with nature, it's feasible he could become distracted enough to not understand the consequences of venturing off or maybe not even notice his name being called at all. The Australian outback is enormous, and nine-year-old boys are typically small creatures. That's just physics. Then there's the yellow hat. It was the only sure sign of Patrick that was found during the entire search effort, and Joe said it was very special to his brother. He didn't believe Patrick would ever simply take it off and leave it there. That leaves two possibilities that I can see. One is that he may have had a seizure and become disoriented or injured himself in a fall, while the second possibility leads us to the next theory. What if he was taken? It would be straightforward to lose his hat in a struggle, but if there was a struggle, how did no one notice signs or hear his cries for help? It's hard to say if he could have been lured away. Some children, whether neurotypical or divergent, are more trusting than others. If he felt safe in the forest, he may have been more at ease than in an everyday situation. No evidence of foul play was ever discovered, but you guys know how I feel about these situations. I've said it before, and I'll say it plenty more. 
the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. An astronomer named Carl Sagan said it first. Thanks, Carl. He wasn't even an investigator. Knowledge is power, kids. Soak it up. If someone did take Patrick, they must have been in the exact right place at the exact right time to do it. If the family never mentioned seeing anyone else in the area, and indeed that would have been notable, some wondered if family members were as close behind him as they claimed. They went on nature walks often enough and it is reasonable to assume they felt secure with Patrick's behavior on them. But again, that's just speculation. As far as I know, the family has never fallen under suspicion, not for anything intentional or neglectful. Sometimes it's hard to accept that accidents just happen. Nine times out of ten, he would have been right around the corner as expected. But this was one of those other times. Of course, there are plenty of missing 411 speculations out there as well. The Yowie is a creature referred to as the Australian Bigfoot. Descriptions vary, but it's usually described as a hairy ape man, anywhere from 7 to 12 feet with large, flat noses, giant mouths, bat-like ears, and feet that are much larger than a human being's. Reports of its behavior also vary from timid to violent and aggressive. Personally, a creature so massive would have left footprints that would be hard to not notice by anyone. So, I'll have to respectfully disagree on this one. As much as I love an excellent Yowie story, I don't want to be disrespectful to anybody's story. And with that swamp folk, that does it for this episode. So, down in the comments, let me know. What did you think of Patrick's case? Do you think he was a troubled child who ran off and had the worst possible luck at every turn? Was some deranged psychopath in the right place at the right time to snatch him up and make a run for it at the right moment? Or can you think of another explanation entirely? If there were underground cave systems or tunnels, I would say he could have fallen into a hole, but I just can't think of any other possibilities, at least not natural ones anyway. This is one of those instances where it truly feels like the victim vanished without a trace. Personally, this case gives me very similar vibes to the Stacey Aris case we've covered in the past. If you'd like to learn more about that one, you can find a link on screen or in the description. Welcome back, Swamp Folk. I have a fascinating mystery to share today. I promise you, you will love it. This one occurred in the Dyset Susan National Park, established in December 1934 in the mountainous center of Japan's northern Hokkaido. It's the largest national park in Japan. Its name translates to the Great Snowy Mountains. Before we dive into our actual topic, I want to share an exciting piece of information I discovered in my research. According to a local article, the people of Hokkaido have long revered the Dyset Susan Mountains as a sacred place. In their native language, it's called Natap Kamui Sur, which means the mountains towering over the great wetlands. But due to its diverse wildlife and breathtaking views, it is also known by the more affectionate name of God's Playground. A stretch of the park extends across the outer limit of a town called Bie, which is well known for its famous rolling hills. These were created many millions of years ago when the mountains violently erupted leaving behind volcanic deposits that cooled to form their current scenery. Some of these peaks are still active volcanoes today, such as the one we'll discuss in this episode, Mount Asahidaki, which stands just over 7,500 feet tall, making it the tallest of all 16 peaks. It's located at the park's northern end and features a beautiful hiking trail that is arguably one of the most popular tourist attractions in Daisetsuzen. People travel from all over the world to make this trek, and it's easy to see why. Along the way, landmarks are used as guides. When hikers pass one, it offers reassurance that they are heading in the right direction. The most important of these landmarks is a large boulder named Safe Rock. Its name comes from its resemblance to a safe or a vault, but this landmark has a deadly twin. In the same area sits a second, nearly identical boulder dubbed as False Safe Rock. If someone mistakes it for the real landmark, they will find themselves on a seemingly correct path until realizing they're moving downhill into a swampy valley overgrown with tall, thick bamboo. Once inside, everything is so dense that it becomes difficult to see, and not everyone finds their way back out. 
The story we're covering today involves multiple lost hikers and a mysterious SOS signal. Everyone knows about SOS signals, right? Just in case you do not, it's a universal code for help. No matter where you are in the world, you can communicate that you're in distress with three simple letters. It may sound pretty straightforward, and usually it is, but I promise this time is a bit different. Just settle in and get ready for a lot of twists and turns. To fully appreciate the mystery of the SOS incident, we'll need to begin our story in 1989. Two hikers went missing on Mount Asahidake. Assuming they followed the wrong trail from False Safe Rock, a police helicopter led the search for the missing men on July 24th. There was no trace of the hikers until just before nightfall when rescuers suddenly spotted a strange SOS sign. Astonishingly, it was made from 19 birch trees that were cut and stacked together, each just over 16 feet long and just under 10 feet wide. They were also placed in a clearing far from the nearest birch trees. Can you imagine what it would take to put something like this together? Seriously, just think about it for just a rational second. It's a relatively important part of the case that will ultimately play a significant role in determining which side you choose. According to online sources and Wikipedia, the searchers quickly turned back to land, and while there, there was still no sign of the missing hikers. At first, though hungry and dehydrated, they had no severe injuries and were none the worse for wear, especially considering their circumstances. They were given food and water on the way to the hospital where they could fully recover. When officers later praised them for making such a clever SOS sign, without which they indeed would not have been found, the hikers had no clue what they were actually talking about. This was completely unexpected. If they had not made the sign, then that begs the obvious question, who the heck did? I want to note here that some accounts vary as to whether or not this conversation happened in the helicopter or while the two men recovered in the hospital. The details are a little bit lost in translation, so I do apologize. Regardless, it was quickly confirmed that the rescued hikers had not, in fact, made the SOS sign. They weren't even aware that it had existed. Then came the chilling realization that if these two hikers had not made the sign, someone else clearly had. Someone who was still down there, potentially needing help. Before we move on to the next search, can we take a moment to appreciate what an insane stroke of luck this was for our two missing hikers who did make it out alive, though? Without even knowing the sign was there, they just happened to be close enough to reach the investigating rescuers. And, had anything gone differently that day, it's possible the sign wouldn't have been discovered at all. Don't forget, they only found it just before nightfall. Given the late hour, the search party could not return until the following morning, but it was back in full force at daybreak. Kenji Iwamura The SOS sign was located two and a half miles away from the peak of Asahidake, and an extensive search of the area was conducted. It wasn't long before a gruesome discovery was made as the authorities began collecting bones scattered around the sign. They were old, broken, and bore traces of animal bites, some of which may have occurred while the victim was even still living. Then, in a separate area, but still within a few hundred feet of the sign, police discovered a hole just large enough to fit a single person inside. It contained an unusual assortment of items, such as amulets, a human skull, a tripod, two cameras, a notebook, and a pair of men's basketball shoes. But the most important discoveries were concealed within a backpack. They were a tape recorder with four cassettes and a driver's license belonging to Kenji, a 25-year-old office worker from Aichi Prefecture, and had been missing since July 10th, 1984. Kenji had set out on his own hike up Mount Asahidake, but when he failed to appear for work a week later, his parents reported him as missing. Unfortunately, no trace of Kenji was ever found until this discovery, five years later. At first, the cassette tapes seemed to feature nothing more than theme songs of the time's popular anime. But once listening, the authorities made another unbelievable discovery. Kenji recorded a final message over part of one of the tape's original contents. A statement in which he desperately begs for help that will never arrive. Even though the message was recorded in Japanese, the man's panic and desperation transcends any language barrier. 
the original clip is said to be over two minutes long, but the part of the message that translates to, I'm on a cliff and can't move. SOS, help me. I'm at the spot where I first saw the helicopter. The bamboo grass is too deep and I can't go anywhere. Please lift me from here. Now considering the message specifically said SOS, you may presume he was the one to create the sign and maybe he was. But this theory has several problems. First, however, we'll get through the official story and then we'll break down all of the discrepancies at the end. Before we move on though, I will play a quick snippet of the part that I just translated for you so you can hear the actual desperation yourself in the voice. As for the human remains, the skull seemed to fit with the bones found earlier in the day, and everything was transferred to Asahikawa Medical University for examination. Honestly, this was just protocol at that point. The apparent conclusion is that the remains belonged to Kenji, and again, maybe they do, but initially medical reports determined it would be a woman between the age of 20 to 40 years old with type O blood. These findings would only be corrected when this incident began to attract the wrong kind of attention. In the days it took to reach this conclusion, the world fell in love with the story. Everyone followed it closely, hanging on to every detail. The sheer ingenuity behind the sign was impressive enough. I mean, experts estimated it would take at least two days and considerably more effort than a weak, possibly starving man would have. But that's one of the things we'll come back to. Authorities were able to confirm Kenji owned specific items in the backpack, such as the anime cassette tapes and that he wore the same size shoes as the ones found in the hall. It's understandable how one would conclude that these remains belonged to Kenji, but when those results came back and suddenly it was much more difficult to accept that this was a neatly closed case. Investigators wanted to believe there were two men and a woman involved, but there was no record of a missing female and Kenji was known to be alone when he ventured up the mountain. Plus, if he had met someone along the way, doesn't it seem likely he would have indicated others were also in need of rescue when he was recording the request to be airlifted off the cliff? Many were beginning to feel that Kenji's mention of the SOS was more likely to be a coincidence. We'll probably never know for sure, but these questions led to a great confusion in the investigation and the media coverage. The more Japanese officials insisted the case was solved, the more backlash they would initially receive. Now we're going to move on to some more conspiracy-filled theories since all the information we actually have is kind of dried up at this point. To the world's great surprise, on February 28, 1990, the Asahikawa East Police Station announced a complete re-examination of the remains had been performed and new findings concluded they belonged to a male with type A blood or, in other words, Kenji. Make of that what you will. It feels a bit, um, suspicious to me. The Japanese aren't exactly known for being open and honest with their investigations, but it's only fair to hear both sides. And a Reed Cash article does report that mistakes on such a grand scale can happen often enough in medical universities. At the very least, it's not impossible, you know? So let's take a closer look at the sign itself instead. Today, this story is considered one of the more excellent internet mystery classics. And the ingenuity behind the sign is one of the main reasons that people are so obsessed with this. When it was constructed, the only thing we can say for certain is that the Japan Forest Agency and the Japan Geographical Authority checked previous aerial photos taken in September 1987. They could confirm the sign was already there. They also studied records from 1982, but these photographs lacked the enormous SOS signal. Experts estimated it was likely at least two days and significantly more energy than a weak, possibly starving man would even possess. Each of the 19 logs seemed to have been cut with an axe, yet no axe or any such cutting tool has ever been recovered from the site. Does that mean one doesn't exist? No, of course not. But the area has been thoroughly searched on multiple occasions. Oddly, it would be the only item to remain lost. Plus, don't forget how big the logs themselves were. 16 feet long and 10 feet wide sections of birch tree must weigh several hundred pounds, maybe closer to a thousand if you want to be realistic. 
I find it challenging to believe Kenji would be able to drag such sections of wood into the clearing, especially when the autopsy report specifically described him as very frail. It would have been quite literally impossible for him to do alone. As for why Kenji would specifically mention SOS in the recording, one interesting observation made by anime fans is that Usamu, Tezuka's Astro Boy features a famous scene in which fallen trees are arranged into the shape of an SOS, or perhaps, unlike the two missing hikers, Kenji had previously seen the enormous sign, and it was simply on his mind. Either way, it's widely accepted that he recorded these messages intending to play them back for rescuers should he be discovered after becoming too debilitated to speak. Now, assumably, batteries would last longer than your own lung capacity. Those who disagree with this theory do believe the tape recorder was switched on by accident while the man was screaming for help. But I disagree. His message was exact, as it's giving somebody a specific instruction. It's not mindless cries for help. Of course, some question whether the man in the recording is Kenji or not as well. When his parents heard the recording, they could not confirm it was their son's voice. Is it because it wasn't their son? Or is it because grieving parents have a hard time accepting the loss of a child? It's also worth noting that the sound quality of the cassette tape isn't exactly what we're used to hearing today. While yes, the cassettes were in pretty good condition and played rather fine, there's only so much a cassette recorder can do for a desperate, panicked man trying to record what he knows may be his last message. Furthermore, according to Kenji, he was trapped atop a cliff, needing to be airlifted out, but yet his bones were discovered out in the open. It's speculated he eventually reached a point where he simply wanted to descend the mountain any way possible, but when he climbed down to this last cliffside, he could not proceed any further or turn back. However, this argument is often met with the fact that Kenji could have easily changed his mind after recording the message. Eventually, he would have accepted the helicopter wasn't returning, and at that point he may have become desperate enough to continue his descent. Though this leaves us with even more questions. Would he have had enough energy to undertake such a task and constructing that sign? Primarily, if the climb down was responsible for his fractured bones, one fracture was found on a leg bone and the other was in his upper body. With all that said, that's still not the end of it. What about Mother Nature herself? We know this sign already existed in September of 1987, but how long can something like that sit out in the open elements without suffering overgrowth? How can it endure the extreme mountain weather conditions of heavy snow and rain yet still be perfectly visible for such an extended period? Investigators only stated that the logs looked too old and were partially submerged in mud. Is it more likely that someone constructed the sign after Kenji's death but before the two missing hikers in 1989? Because there are still plenty who believe Kenji is still responsible despite these contradictions. And unfortunately with that, there's not too much more I can cover without kind of running in circles and just covering theories that kind of are based off other theories and, you know, I don't want to waste our time. So with that, what do you guys think is going on here? Maybe it's not the pretty staggering evidence that it seems to be at first glance. What do you think? Did Kenji make the sign? Or did someone come along after him? Did bones belonging to... Did the bones actually belong to a missing woman? Or are they actually Kenji's? Were Kenji's bones never found? Could those body parts be less of a match than we thought? Did the medical university receive two different results based on which bone was tested? Let's hope the mistakes weren't taken that far, right? Seriously, this was actually a very fascinating case to research, and I highly recommend viewing the articles for yourself if you want to learn more. But first, you have to let me know what you think in the comments. Shrek will be angry if you don't, of course. We gotta stay safe out here in these swampy streets. While you're at it, be sure to slap that like button, be sure to subscribe if you're new, and turn on notifications as I upload brand new videos nearly every day on cases just like this.